You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Good afternoon. Welcome to this talk. My name is Scott Radnitz. I'm the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. And today we're going to be focusing on the latter part of that very big region. Uh, today we have with us the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Central Asia, uh, Dan Rosenblum, who oversees U.S. policy toward dipl and diplomatic relations with the five Central Asian post-Soviet states. Prior to having this position, uh, Mr. Rosenblum was coordinator of U.S. assistance in Europe, Eurasia, and Central Asia, responsible for administering foreign aid budgets averaging over a billion dollars annually. His office provided strategic guidance and oversight for all U.S. foreign assistance in more than, more than 30 countries in the former Soviet Union, the Western Balkans, and Central Europe. Mr. Rosenblum has a BA in history from Yale and an MA in Soviet studies and international economics from the Johns Hopkins uh, SICE School. And today, he will be talking about Central Asia and the question of why we should care. As a specialist in Central Asia, I often find myself trying to answer that question. So I and many of you are probably interested in hearing what um, the State Department has to say about that question as well. So please join me in welcoming uh, Mr. Rosenberg. Thank you. Thanks for that. Good, good lead-in to the discussion, uh, warm and warm welcome. Uh, I'm really glad to uh, have this chance to talk to all of you today and to be here in Seattle. Um, it's not, it's a little unusual for us State Department types to come to another American city and have a chance to meet and interact with students, with um, teachers, with, uh, you know, uh, American citizens who are interested in our regions. It's, it's not such a um, common thing for us to do. And uh, what I discovered when I started arranging this trip was the, the incredible depth of interest and knowledge about Central Asia here in Seattle and in, this, in the Northwest region, um, and which I hadn't been fully, fully aware of. I did have uh, one previous, this is actually only my second time ever in Seattle in my life. Um, my first visit was, thank you, my first visit was 1997 when I had just joined the State Department, literally my second week on the job. I, did, I knew nothing what I was doing, but I, my boss at the time, who was the coordinator of, a, of foreign assistance to Europe and Eurasia, the job that I later occupied, uh, and a guy named Richard Morningstar, who, by the way, was later our ambassador to Azerbaijan and our ambassador to the European Union, um, asked me to come with him to Seattle and Anchorage to talk about the interest of people on the west coast of the U.S. in the Russian Far East, which was an area that I was focusing on when I, when I started. Um, so that was my only previous exposure here. And even then, I could I sensed an awful lot of citizen-to-citizen -citizen initiatives going on and a lot of interest in, uh, in building those linkages. And, and we had that interest, too, at, at the State Department. Um, so today, as you can tell from the, the title, of our session, um, I'm going to try to convince you, I think this would be an easy, easy audience to convince, explain to you why we think that the United States as a country, why the 
State Department itself should care about what happens in Central Asia. But I'm going to start by telling you why I care about it and just tell you a little bit my, about my own personal odyssey that got me to where I am today uh, because I think in some ways it sort of parallels the evolution of U.S. interest in the region. I didn't plan it that way when I was born that that, that I was going to be you know, the poster child for uh, U.S.-Soviet relations, but, but there are some interesting parallels. Uh, I was, uh, I, my interest actually started literally when I was one year old, even though I didn't know it at the time. Uh, when I was one year old, my father, um, a, uh, a scientist working at NASA in Cleveland, Ohio, where I was born, got involved in a discussion group of people at his synagogue, at uh, the synagogue that I grew up in, in Cleveland. And the discussion group was about where are there Jewish populations around the world who might be in danger of having something happen to them as happened to the Jews of Europe in the Holocaust. And somehow they, they focused on the Jews of the Soviet Union. There, I think there were some things that were being written about that community at the time. And they started talk, reading articles and talking about them. And they somehow evolved from that to saying, we need to do something about this to publicize the plight of Jews in the Soviet Union in terms of their ability to practice their religion, their rights, and so on. And, uh, and this was in 1962, so this, you know, just put it into perspective of the, what, they were, what they were doing. So fast forward a number of years, my father later became the first chairman of something called the Union of Councils for Soviet Jews, which was an advocacy group. I think it still exists in some form, but it's, it's changed its mission somewhat, that was advocating for the right to emigrate from the Soviet Union and also the right to practice religion, have religious materials, and so on. So my growing up years were spent surrounded by this, all of this activity, and we actually had people who had emigrated, who had succeeded in emigrating, the so-called, some, some, some of you recognize this term, who, uh, some of the people more of my generation, uh, refuseniks, those who had been refused permission to, to, uh, to leave, who then had later gotten out, came to our home, uh, slept in our guest room, and uh, taught me a few words of Russian. <laughs> I remember there was this one uh, a former ballet dancer who was with the Kirov Ballet in Leningrad at the time, uh, who uh, put me on her lap. I was about maybe six or seven years old, and taught me how to say "Ya Haroshi Malchi." And that was that piqued my interest. <laughs> so I was obsessed for many years, or and intrigued by what was happening in the Soviet Union, and I later went on to study um, as. Uh, as Scott noted in his introduction at, at uh, um, Russian history and then Soviet studies at Johns Hopkins. Um, and I graduated right at the time that the Soviet Union was dissolving. So I was, I was in graduate school in 1989 and 1990, very exciting years of what, in term, from the United States perspective in terms of what was happening. And I came out of that experience um, feeling, first of all, that Big change was possible because at that time in our world the change was it seemed to be accelerating and it seemed from certainly from a US perspective to be positive change in the direction of more democratic societies more open or more openness ability of people to, to travel and to uh, exchange ideas um, and 
and some of you also will recall at that time, some were predicting the end of history. This was going to be the start of a new era when there would no longer be conflicts between ideologies and so on because you know a certain ideology had won and was going to be the, the one that everyone would adopt, liberal, Western-style democracy. Uh, and so that, I would say, got, in addition to my interest in the region, got me feeling like I wanted to be involved in, uh, in that change in some way, in some active way. So before I joined the State Department, I spent six years working for part of the AFL-CIO, the you know, Labor Federation, our, our National Labor Federation, but in their international division and developing relations with trade unions, labor unions, in throughout the former Soviet Union, in Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan as well. Um, we had field offices, we were doing training, we were getting U.S. government funds to do this work from USAID, mostly also the National Endowment for Democracy. And, um, and it was a time, again, those, those early 90s years were a time of great hope, I think, uh, and, uh, and great possibility. Uh, I think that there was a point at which some of that great hope and possibility turned into some disillusionment and some maybe um, a more realistic assessment about what was possible in terms of change and the speed of the change. And I went through that in my own personal journey as I, I realized that maybe um, this work was not going to result in a new uh, solidarity on the lines of what happened in Poland in the 1980s, uh, that in fact the conditions in the countries of the region were such that uh, uh, it, was, it was going to take a lot more time, and, and, and not only that, but that the change might not go in a linear way, that it wouldn't just go from the Soviet system to a European democracy, uh, that there was going to be uh, lots of detours along the way. Um, so then I joined the State Department in 1997 and worked on the foreign assistance programs, a lot of the same programs that I had been you know, in implementing as part of this, uh, this labor group. And, uh, and I began to work on foreign aid, foreign assistance, for really the next 19 years, from my trip to Seattle in 1997 <laughs> up until a couple of years ago. And uh, I realized, even during that time, that even what we were doing through the foreign assistance to try to encourage reform, to support uh, young people learning more about the outside world through exchange programs, uh, to provide technical assistance to governments and institutions uh, in terms of how to, how to implement new, new ways of doing business, uh, was not happening at the speed that some people expected that it was, uh, it was going to take a long time. My last evolution, maybe not the last ever, hopefully not the last ever, but the, the most recent one, two years ago, I moved into the position I am now, um, working not so much on programs and on uh, you know, assistance, but on the diplomatic relationship and the um, management of our policy towards the region. Uh, and, and so I have had been part of the roller coaster, I would say, of U.S. interest in Central Asia and the broader region, from the euphoria somewhat maybe almost irrational euphoria of the early 1990s to today's more, I would say, more sober 
more realistic uh, approach to what's possible. And um, the question is, so what is possible in Central Asia specifically these days? And going to the question that I asked, why, why does it matter to the United States? Why, why should the United States care? And I guess the starting point for answering that question is, um, is there a common thread that runs through our policy interests from the independence of Central Asia to today? And I believe there is, and it was laid out very early on in the Freedom Support Act, which was passed by Congress in 1992 and was a reflection of our policy at the time. And that is supporting independent, sovereign, and integral states in Central Asia and the, in the whole former Soviet region. And now that sounds, you know, it sounds nice to say that, and uh, the countries appreciate it when we assert that the U.S. supports their independence and their sovereignty. Um, but the question is why, you know, why does that matter so much to the United States? And we don't actually talk about this so much anymore. It was probably more uh, conversation in the early 90s, but the origin of that really comes from a broader view of the United States of its interests in throughout the Eurasian landmass and this idea that we it's not in our interest to have one power, a single powerful country that are that part of that region dominate the rest. Because our experience with those kinds of situations was quite bad in the 20th century, if we recall, whether Stalin's Soviet Union or Hitler's uh, Germany. Um, and so there's a very strong bias against having a similar situation arise and therefore the support for having a, a large group of independent states that can stand on their own and develop their own relationships has become ingrained in our policy. And that's a, that's a thread that runs through why we care about the region from 1992 till today. But there's been an evolution of the other interests and the other reasons why we care. Um, in the 90s, I think that there was a feeling that the independence and sovereignty was still an unfinished project and needed to be nurtured and supported. And so throughout that decade, the idea was that we ought to promote economic reform, market-type economic systems, that we ought to promote democratic governments. And um, and while we're doing it, maybe let's let's also promote more U.S. trade, more you know, sort of benefit some of our own economic interests in the region. And those were seen that was seen as sufficient for why we should care, why we should give assistance, why we should have relations. And as a, as I hinted at earlier, I think that there was a lot of um, there was a disappointment at the the pace at which that process happened, and some of the setbacks, and so. By the end of the 90s, that probably that, that alone, this idea of nurturing the change might not have been sufficient to um, continue a lot of U.S. interest in the region indefinitely. Then 9-11 happened, and that was a real turning point in terms of the way the U.S. saw its interests in Central Asia. After 9-11, immediately after, really, within weeks, um, the U.S. was very strongly reaching out to the Central Asian countries. It was about... The, the war in Afghanistan, of course, supporting that, and about them joining our efforts to combat terrorism worldwide. But also, it was underlined with a with a fear, with a with a maybe concern is a better word, a strong concern 
that we we didn't want the Central Asian states to become fragile, unstable, and end up like Afghanistan and become sources for the threats uh, that we saw coming from, uh, from uh, at that time, Al-Qaeda was the big one, but there were other groups that we were concerned about. So from 2001 until, uh, really up until today, but I'll get to this in a minute, whether there's been any change in recent years, uh, that has been an underlying interest as well of the U.S. That is an interest in preventing failed states, become the, having them become havens, for potentially havens for terrorists, preventing instability in the region. But alongside that, the, the support for the independence and sovereignty of the individual countries remains. So you now have those, those are sort of the, the girder, the, uh, the, the foundation of U.S. interests in the region, those two things. And the question, so then how do, we, how do we think those will be achieved in the long run, those, those goals? The idea is that there are essentially three elements that will support those, those goals. One is having these countries have greater capacity themselves to provide for their own security. That can be everything from having secure borders, and we provide various kinds of help to that, to um, training, joint training with security forces, and working with law enforcement agencies. And there are some problematic aspects to that, especially in some of the Central Asian countries, and we can get to that in the Q&A, because of course they have, off, uh, all of them to one degree or another, have um, serious deficiencies on the human rights front, which we raise with them very openly and directly, but um, observance of basic human rights is a challenge. And for that reason, our security subsistence is also a challenge. And again, I can talk about that more later. The second element of it is economic prosperity. That is, we want these countries to succeed economically because that's the best long-term guarantee that they'll remain stable. And the two main elements to this economic prosperity objective are internal reform to become more effective as economies and better connectivity, better connection to the neighboring countries and the rest of the world. The connectivity part of it has become more important in recent years, or it's been talked about more under terms like the New Silk Road. Some of you might have heard that, the New Silk Road Initiative. Um, there's a lot of interest on the part of China as well in this connectivity aspect to get goods from Asia to, to Europe and through Central Asia. Um, but. This is, we see this as vital for these countries to actually succeed in the long run because without the connectivity, they're, well, most of the Central Asian countries are double landlocked countries, they're, you know, and their infrastructure is often cut off from the outside world. So um, those, those two parts are key to the economic prosperity. And then the third element is having a more accountable, more transparent um, government, government uh, functions and respect for basic human rights. And again, the, the argument there is those, those elements are key to long-term stability. In the short term, it may be enough to keep a lid on everything, but over time, that's going to result, we argue, and we, to them also, directly to these governments, in the long term, that will be a recipe for instability. So. Our interest in the region has evolved somewhat over the years, as I said, especially after 9-11. Um, but the question now, I guess, looking ahead is, 
what's the next evolution or has it already happened? A lot of people have talked about the drawdown in Afghanistan that's occurred in terms of our troop, troop support, troop levels, and does that mean that the U.S. is pulling away from the region? There was actually a lot of concern among the Central Asian countries that, that that's exactly what would occur. Um, first of all, of course, there's been some change in the plan, as uh, you've heard and President Obama announced last year. Troop levels would not go to zero at the end of 2016, as they were originally planned to. And that, in fact, basically there will, there will be U.S. troops there certainly into the next administration and beyond. Um, and the Central Asians actually were very pleased to, to learn, to hear that announcement and, and felt re somewhat reassured that, that we were going to stay. Um, but it is true that the effort in Afghanistan is much less, the, the intensity of, of it is much less. And our need for the Central Asians to serve as um, a transit point for goods coming in to Afghanistan has lessened for military purposes. So that raises the question, do, you know, does that mean that we don't care anymore and there's, we don't really have any fundamental interest there? And I, we try to answer that question, but it's not, you know, I admit it's not a definitive answer, but we tried to answer it with Secretary Kerry's visit to the region last fall. Um, and some of you may have seen some of the coverage of that. He visited all five countries. The first time a U.S. Secretary of State's ever done that, we actually we did some research to see if that was true because we were going to say it was a historic visit. And it turns out yeah, Jim Baker, when he was Secretary, did go to all five, but not in one trip. He split it up in a couple of trips. So this is the, the only time, first and only time, a U.S. Secretary has done all five in one trip. Um, he also... Uh, met with representatives, with the foreign ministers of all five Central Asian countries together, also the first time that's ever happened, uh, in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. Uh, and the purpose of that was to set the stage, we hope, for a longer-term uh, regional <coughs> format for uh, the U.S. to meet together with the five Central Asians and to agree on common goals. Uh, we did issue a statement in Samarkand together that identified what some of those common goals would be. I can go more into that during the Q&A if you're interested. But the basic idea was there are things in terms of security, in terms of environmental concerns, and in terms of economic relations that they, sh they do share in common. Um, relationships are often difficult and tense, and there's a lot of conflicts over things like the use of water resources in Central Asia. But there are things they agree on, and we're hoping to foster more collaboration among the countries, too. And that was one of the Secretary's uh, big messages from his trip. So moving forward, um, I don't know if this is a third phase in U.S. interest in Central Asia or not. I would like to view it as more a continuation of what we started with in 1991, this idea that there is a U.S. interest in having a secure and stable region, because if it becomes insecure and unstable, it's going to bite us one way or another. It's going to hurt our, our, our own national security. And that the best way to have it be a secure and stable region is to have independent sovereign states that have good, well-functioning economies that are connected with each other, secure borders, and accountable government. So that, that's the vision. <laughs> Um, recognizing that we're, we're not there and in some cases a long way from that 
that's that's the vision, and that's uh, that's the basis for why the U.S. should care about Central Asia. So I'm going to leave it there and look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, great. If I could just uh, start things off uh, with a couple questions. Uh, I first want to recognize that, that you have a very difficult job. <laughs> and those of us who know this region understand that these are some very difficult countries with very difficult, complex politics. So um, it, it's easy and it would be unfair to simply take pot shots at the U.S. government for uh, failing to uh, achieve all of, all of these goals, which are, of course, ambitious, but naturally difficult to accomplish because of these difficulties. Uh, so I just want to, um, there's a lot of questions I could ask you. I want to start with, with just the, two very big questions, one having to do with policy formulation and one having to do with implementation. On the policy formulation question, uh, you outlined several U.S. priorities in the region, and at least in abstractly, it might look that all these things could go together. You could make an argument for how good governance and prosperity and stability are mutually reinforcing. But you could also, and I would argue more plausibly, argue that there are trade-offs and that succeeding in one of these areas might involve less success or failure in another area. A couple examples. Uh, helping countries to provide their own security might come at the expense of human rights and transparent government. Uh, working with these countries um, to provide their own security uh, or good governance might also come at the expense of uh, their sovereignty and independence if it's important for other neighboring countries that are not the U.S. to be more heavily involved in order to invest in these countries or provide some security. So uh, what do you do when you encounter these trade-offs, how do you prioritize uh, both in the office in D.C. and when you're in the region uh, talking to government officials? So that's the first question. Second question is about implementation. Uh, Central Asia, of course, is an important region, but there are a lot of important, complicated things going on in the world, and I imagine Secretary Kerry's hands are very full right now. And I also assume that in the priority list of U.S. interests abroad, Central Asia is pretty low in the priority list for now. Maybe 20th, maybe 50th. I don't know if they keep that kind of list, but I imagine this is not, Central Asia doesn't keep a lot of high-ranking policy members up late at night. For now. until That's a good thing. Until, a good thing. And that is a good thing. But my question is, if and when something bad or big happens, Will our policymakers frantically scramble to figure out what's going on? Uh, will they have to reach far outside government to find specialists? Will they, will they be in the dark as to you know, what's going on, who's in charge, what the implications are? Or are you reassured that if and when something big happens, that the U.S. government has resources and assets in place that will help the U.S. respond quickly and appropriately. So I'll leave it at that. Those are very big questions. Okay. Good. No, but, but, but excellent questions. Uh, it goes right to the heart of the matter in terms of what I do. 
Um, so the first question about sort of how do we prioritize among priorities or among objectives? Uh, how do we and how do we balance those things? Uh, first of all, I do agree with you that while they ought to be mutually reinforcing, in practice they sometimes come at the expense of one another. I mean that's just the reality of the way things are in the region. Um, and I would say that we don't, you know, we try not to have uh, an inflexible prioritization that can never be, be shifted um, because at any given time we, we're looking for the, the leverage points to make progress and that might, that, that changes over time. Um, so for example, on security, um, you know, the way, the way, I guess the way we approach the security side and enhancing the security capabilities of these governments is to look at it in terms of who's providing these, the assistance, the, the help to them. We think it's, and, and we've convinced them in some cases that this is the case, that it's beneficial for the U.S. to be providing more of that help because we actually build into a lot of our programs elements that make for security forces to be more accountable and more respectful of human rights. I mean, that's, that's ingrained in the sort of training that we provide. We don't think that that's necessarily something they're getting from other, other providers of security assistance. Um, we also view the security assistance as a, um, a trust-building measure. That is, that over time, if, we can, if we're doing these things simultaneously, if we're working in the security sector, but also working on pushing on governance, on human rights, on economic reform, and so on, um, that we're more likely to make progress in other areas if we're also providing the security assistance. Now, that's a, that is a debatable and controversial point, and there are many who argue, at least, and I get this in Washington all the time, that we should be withholding help on the security side until certain things happen on the other in the on other fronts particularly of course on the human rights front um, and so but we we preferred we have found it to be more effective we believe it to be more effective to approach these things in parallel and we think we can as, as I sometimes put it we think we can walk and chew gum at the same time on these and uh, as we're working with these countries um, but just to take a step back, I mean, the balance that goes on over time is the product of a continual conversation within the U.S. government and the interagency, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, the State Department, and other agencies about what will best further these big goals that I talked about and what's the right balance of the carrots and sticks, of the, you know, the push and pull. And it does, you know, it, it changes over time. I mean, there was a dramatic reduction in our engagement with Uzbekistan after the Andijan uh, massacre back in 2005. Uh, that was, you know, that was definitely a, um, it was a product of the reaction of the Uzbek government to statements we made, but it was also, a, you know, it was a calculated um, strategic decision at the time. But we have, in the ensuing 10 years have actually rebuilt a lot of the trust that disappeared after 2005 and rebuilt a lot of the engagements with the government of Uzbekistan. But we've also made it clear to them and also to other governments in the region that 
there are limits to how far we can go until we see improvement in other areas, that we can't realize the full potential of all these different streams until we see progress on all of them going forward. But presumably it's still the case that different agencies value different priorities. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, so now the second question about where Central Asia ranks in the larger scheme of things and whether how we would be able to respond if um, there was a big crisis uh, you know, I would, I would be, as, as, as much as it goes against the grain for someone who cares and focuses on the region so much to admit it, uh, you're right. It's not in the top 10 uh, <laughs> of regions of the world in terms of, you know, what keeps senior people awake at night. Uh, there's no question. Again, to some degree, that's not a bad thing because, you know, we don't want to I don't, I don't want to be, you know, getting calls at 2 a.m. about the latest, uh, you know, coup or whatever it is happening. But it, it, I would acknowledge that it's not at the very top. I think it is, it's very significant um, that Secretary Kerry made the trip he made. That was, it was in the making, it was in the planning for a long time, and it took a while to find the time when he could do it. And, uh, and I think it, it is an indication that the U.S., government feels that there's, there is a, a significant amount of stake at stake in Central Asia and how it develops, um, enough that the secretary devoted, you know, about a week of his time and a lot of uh, hours on planes uh, to go to all five capitals, and not just to go, but to engage, um, particularly in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. He didn't spend as much time on the ground in the other two. Um, and, and to talk about our interests and articulate them and do a lot of press and outreach and so on. Um, but it, it's not at the very top of the list. Um, if, there's a, if there is a big crisis, if things, you know, if some, well, maybe the next uh, overthrow of a government somewhere happens or something like that, not that I expect it in the near term, uh, I, we, I would say that we have a good reservoir of expertise. We can always benefit from, and part of the reason why I'm here in, in Seattle is to, to learn from you all, too, and from the resources here at the University of Washington. Um, and, uh, but we can always benefit from more knowledge that's not within the U.S. government. But um, I, I think we would be well positioned to respond, but with one caveat, and that is that because of the geographic distance and because of, you know, the sort of assets that we have in the region, um, you know, our response might not match that of other countries. I mean, that's just a reality, too. You know, we're not, it's not going to be like, uh, I don't know, a crisis in the Mediterranean or even a crisis in uh, the South China Sea or something like that. It's not, that, that isn't the way we're positioned in Central Asia. Um, but diplomatically, I think we would be very involved uh, we already had, of course, a couple. I mean, we had the two revolutions or uh, overturnings of government in Kyrgyzstan in 2005 and 2010, uh, where we got pretty deeply engaged in dealing with the, the, the consequences, some of it through international organizations like the OSCE. But, um, and I think the same would happen in a future, hope, hopefully never happen, uh, never have to happen in a future crisis. Please. Thank you for those uh, interesting comments on the SEO and on Chinese uh, policy, Asian Investment Bank, and so forth. How does all that fit with the uh, objectives of the Eurasian Economic Union? Uh, or does that fit with Russia's objectives with the impact movement? 
even though I, I have brought this up at the end, I have to ask you to forgive. Uh, on the basis of our experience of India and Pakistan in regard to Afghanistan, <laughs> what what wonderful things will they bring to Central Asia? But that is a separate. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, okay. Well, on the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, that is, um, you know, I think it's it's viewed in Moscow as part of a larger effort to integrate countries in the region more closely with Russia. Um, and, Is that but, something we want, or, or, or does that conflict with our independence? Well, it, it could conflict with the independence objective. On the other hand, we, we're trying to be consistent here, because of our, our message to the countries of the region and to Russia is that countries should be able to choose how they want to uh, associate themselves in terms of economic uh, associations, in terms of military alliances, and so on. Um, and of course, you remember the whole Ukraine crisis came about and Russia's actions in Crimea and eastern Ukraine because the Ukrainians were going to sign an agreement with the European Union to associate more closely with the European Union. So um, we have said to Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, who of course has been a member of this, of what was the customs union for a long time, uh, that that we respect as their sovereign right, their right to associate in that way, um, provided that it's all done in a way that's consistent with international trading rules and doesn't counteract, contradict their obligations as WTO members. Now, Kazakhstan actually just joined the WTO last uh, winter. Uh, they officially came in, in, I think, in December. Um, so they're still making that adjustment to how, how to make those two things consistent. But Kyrgyzstan has been a WTO member for a long time, and I would say they're struggling a little bit to, to make these compatible. Um, they may get there, but, um, but along the way, you know, anything that facilitates trade in the broader region is consistent with this idea of better connectivity. So we're not, we're not opposed to the Eurasian Economic Union per se, but we also we, we, we view it with some... I would say caution and, and some uh, reticence to, we're not going to say, you know, it's the greatest thing since, I don't know, since the Marshall Plan or something like that, um, because it remains to be seen what effect it has on countries' trade writ large and their relations with other trading partners. Um, so the I think the you know, you, you started by drawing the, the link with what's the developments with SCO and, and how this, this connects. I mean, I think that that Russia and its neighbors are still sorting out how this relates to the bigger integrationist projects. Um, and I know, for example, there was the last time that the Russian and Chinese leaders met, I, th I believe they issued some statement about how the One Belt, One Road and the Eurasian Economic Union would work together in some way. It was a little bit unclear what that, what that means. It's still unclear what that means exactly. But they're, they're thinking about it in bigger terms as well. Um, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to assessments by the countries of the region of what, what benefits them, obviously. For Kyrgyzstan, there was a real logic. That made a lot, it really made a lot of sense for Kyrgyzstan, frankly, to join the Eurasian Economic Union in terms of how their trade was oriented and how they were being hurt by not being in it. 
Uh, it also has to do with their migrant workers in Russia, which is a whole other subject that we haven't touched on, but we could get into. Um, and uh, But for other countries, they're making that calculation right now. And, of course, the Russian economy at the moment is not attracting a lot of them to be, you know, to be more closely linked to the Russian economy has become somewhat less attractive in the last two years. Um, anyway, so that was a, kind of a long-winded answer, but the, the point is that we, as a matter of policy and, you know, what we assert, we, we're not opposed to countries joining that union. It's, up, it's their sovereign decision, and it's a calculation of what benefits them. But we, we, we feel strongly that it should not contradict their other obligations. Um, I'll go here. I was wondering if you, the State Department has an assessment of what impact climate change is going to be having on the region in terms of security or desertification, migration, any of those things? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, it's, and it's something that uh, is more and more in our focus these days, of course. Uh, I, I don't know that we actually have a study that we've done or, or sponsored specifically on that issue. I don't know. Carolyn may know of something. But it is, it's, it's something that comes up frequently in our discussions with the countries of the region because, um, you know, there is, there's a lot of glacial melting happening in the mountains of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan in particular. Um, in the short run, that's going to help them with their hydropower and so on because it means there'll be more water in the short run. But long term, it's it's going to have serious consequences for those countries, and of course, the downstream countries, Uzbekistan to uh, Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan, even more so. Um, and uh, so, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of concern in those countries, but about the long term effects of climate change. But they're not they're not as much a part of the discussion as as many other parts of the world because they're not major contributors. To the to the uh, global warming problem uh, as you know, as emitters of carbon, um, but they they need to be thinking more about adaptation to to the consequences. One of the ways that we're trying to to address that is through this um, new thing. I think I did I mention about the C five plus one. I can't remember now. This is my third. Okay, so. Um, the, uh, when, when John Kerry went out to the region, in addition to visiting each country, he also met with the five foreign ministers of all five countries together in, uh, in Samarkand. Uh, and we call, we're calling it the C5 plus one, as that's the, just the, the, short, the shorthand for this format. And they agreed to focus on three issues going forward as, as a group, as a group of countries. Um, one was security and threats that the region faces. One was the economic connectivity that we've been talking so much about. And the third was environmental concerns. And they especially wanted to focus on the effects of climate change. So, and actually, I have to say that there's one little nuance here which is a little difficult, which is that one of the effects is problematic access to water, right, and, and managing water flows. And that's, that's one of the more highly charged political issues in Central Asia, so it's very difficult for them to talk about it. So we've got everyone agreed that climate change is going to be a topic of discussion and something that we actually develop topic uh, projects around that we can work on together. But we haven't quite figured out how to do that without 
uh, talking about water. <laughs> it's very because right now they're they're just not ready. The five of them to sit around a table and have and talk about water resources. They're just it's too it's too delicate. So anyway. Thank you for the clarity in which you sort of lay things out. That's, that's pretty good. Um, I imagine, though, in your seat, it must be frustrating to have so few tools to actually work with to sort of follow up on these goals. And what I'm thinking of is that, of course, we read all the time that leaders of central Asian states would love to have U.S. involvement to offset the, the, the increasing power of Russia and China uh, in, in, in the region, and China isn't popular. So. But you look at it, we'll never put much military into this region so that their security is going to really be dominated by Russia. They already have bases, and we lost our one. <laughs> and uh, China, they're the, they're the economic engine, so the economic dominance of Russia will is really going to be played off against China. Um, we cannot be helpful on the logical connectivity that's through Iran, because you don't have people blowing up things in Iran <laughs> so much, etc. And, you know, the outside, the natural outlet for economic outside of these two regions is the EU. So we, seems to me, we don't bring anything to the table that these other outside powers really have something to offer the, the Central Asian societies. And then there's us. And I, I just wonder, how do you, is that really true that, that you know, that you really have sort of empty pockets, essentially, when you, when you when secretary, Let me the, difference, see what's, uh, the yeah. difference between what secretary Kerry <laughs> could do with what the previous five route by the president of China, who was signing agreements all over the place, capital by capital, right. was very striking. Okay, um, it is it is not an easy job. I I, I will agree, um, but I also um, I think it's important to look at it in the, in the full the full context of what the U.S. brings and what they what they feel they get from us. Um, so uh, I completely agree that we we can't compete if that's what you know it is. We we don't. We try not to view it as a competition and, uh, you know, as a, like a great game sort of thing. And, in fact, that was one of the repeated statements that the secretary made when he was in the region, which is, you know, we support your independence and sovereignty, multi-vector. We want you to have multi-vector foreign policy. We do not view it as a zero-sum competition. That is, you can have relations with us and benefit from them and with the European Union and with Russia and with China. And you should. And you know, you have to have good neighborly relations with Russia and China. Um, so, but it, but to the extent that there's a view that it's a competition, 
we're not, you're, you're absolutely right. We're not going to put in, we're not putting tens of billions of dollars into infrastructure. Of course, we don't work that way anyway. It would be our private companies doing it for the most part. And, uh, you know, some, some, and some com U.S. companies are in the region, but it's relatively small compared to the others. And we're not going to put big government-backed um, projects in place there. We're not going to um, base troops in the region. And, uh, you know, we did have the base in at Manas in, in Kyrgyzstan for, I guess, about 10 years. Um, and uh, it was always presented as a temporary base and to support the Afghanistan operation. And it was pretty clear at a certain point that the Kyrgyz wanted us to shut down the base. And, and we did, and it was done in a very orderly sort of way. Um, but we're not going to you know, be building new bases in there. Uh, but so the question is, why do the Central Asians continue to urge us to send the Secretary of State or to visit or to be there more? Why do they want us there more? And, and, and I don't think they're, they're not unrealistic about what we are, how, to what extent we're going to project the United States into the region either. And I think it's, it's partly this um, a counterbalance idea that to some extent, if we can say to the Russians and the Chinese and others that we have options, we have other places we can go, maybe not to replace, but to, you know, to, to substitute to some degree for what we get from you. They want options. Um, they also view the United States as a helpful supporter for other goals they have, even global goals. Um, and so this is maybe not the best example, but it's a, you know, sort of along the lines of the way they think. Uh, Kazakhstan is pursuing a, uh, a seat on the UN Security Council starting in 2017. They've been campaigning for this for a couple of years now. Um, and they, of course, want U.S. support. Now, the U.S., as a matter of policy, we don't say that we're going to vote for countries or not for those positions in the U.N. We just don't publicly talk about it. But Kazakhstan has an interest in the U.S. supporting its, its more global ambitions as well. Um, they also... I think truly feel that they benefit from the the software, to use the term uh, that I used earlier, that they get from the United States. That is the expertise, the technology, the know-how, the understanding of things in the world that they want to benefit from that doesn't involve tens of billions of dollars into railroads and doesn't involve, um, you know, putting thousands of troops. but that they, they understand they will actually benefit from, whether it's learn, you know, having our companies invest there and learning from them, whether it's you know, developing a defense relationship where our military is teaching their military things, um, or even in some cases, especially like in a place like Kyrgyzstan, where it's our civil society that they want a relationship with so that they can, their civil society can benefit from it. So it's, a, it, it's not reducible to just, you know, how much money, how many troops, and so on. It's a, it's a broader perspective that they have. And I guess the, you know, the best, again, coming back to the Secretary's trip, uh, the, the best illustration of it, how much they value it, I think, is the, the fact that all five foreign ministers were willing to go to Uzbekistan, which not all of them were happy about, to be honest, um, uh, to, to have this meeting. Um, and, but they, you know, they did it because they really felt that it was a valuable opportunity to engage with the United States uh, because we're the United States. So, um, so that's the way they look at it.
bonus points for graduate students or any students who want to ask a question. I'm a student. Yeah. Are you a student in the back? back? Yes. He gets priority. Um, yeah, I had a question specifically relating to um, Afghanistan and the role between um, Central Asia, Central Asian republics and Afghanistan. So um, I know there's certain ethnic and linguistic and historical ties between the uh, two regions and um, kind of growing uh, connectivity between them as well. So what kind of what kind of role does Central Asia see in itself with the future, with, with the future, mm -hmm. in terms of um, trade, in terms of kind of like a hub connecting it to regions in South Asia, to ports in Iran? Right. Is, that, is that realistic? Do they kind of do they see opportunities there moving forward? So that that's that the great question goes sort of right to the heart of a lot of this uh, new Silk Road initiative that we that, that that's underlies our policy. Uh, I mean. I guess I'll, I'll just say how we view it and then how the Central Asians view it. And they're not exactly the same, although we're hoping that they start converging, the, the, the visions of it. So, you know, we do view uh, better connections between Afghanistan and its neighbors to the north and the south as, as vital to that region's long-term uh, viability, you know, just to, 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 to succeed. Um, and uh, that has led to a lot of efforts, not all of which we're doing. And actually, interestingly, the Chinese have, been, have done some infrastructure work in Afghanistan that's trying to help build that connectivity, too. So it's not just the U.S. Yeah. Um, but uh, whether it's improving the road system or the border crossing points, bridges, and that sort of thing, um, or whether it's getting Afghanistan more involved in trade agreements with its neighbors so that they, you know, so that they kind of, goods can move more easily across the border. So we've really pushed this idea and encouraged it. But there are some, there are some major obstacles that still exist. And this gets to the Central Asians' perspective on how they view Afghanistan. So, you know, they, they, we've come and gone over, over the decades and the centuries. They, they live with it all the time. And many of the Central Asian countries do, are, are skeptical about how far the stabilization process will go in Afghanistan, and they're kind of hedging their bets a little bit. So they will support these initiatives that we that we sponsor, and they will, and they certainly would like to see reconciliation in Afghanistan, a peace process. You know, they they very strongly support the efforts that the the Quad, this you know China, Pakistan, the U.S. and um, the Afghans have Afghan government have done to encourage um, talks with the Taliban. Uh, but they also, um, well, they're, I would, they're, they're skeptical. I guess that's the best word to use. They're not sure that this is going to work out. And so, again, this goes to this idea of the multi-vector approach that they take. They're, they're, look, they're interested in other connections, too, that don't necessarily involve Afghanistan, whether it's Iran or whether it's, you know, with China, <clears throat> with China and so on. Um, and they're not going to put all their eggs into that basket. Um, there is a lot of back and forth that happens, ethnically speaking, because there are there are uh, Tajik, Uzbek, and Turkmen populations in uh, in Afghanistan, and um, the, those relationships run deep and they predate you know the current situation by a lot, um, and uh, and that adds another element to it as well. So, for example, the Turkmen government, the government of Turkmenistan, 
has actually done a lot of humanitarian type aid and also provided electricity to the areas of western Afghanistan that border on Turkmenistan. And they'll probably, and those are the sorts of things we, we encourage. I mean, we want to see those ties built, and we want to see neighboring countries do things that promote stability in Afghanistan. So those interests will continue, but overall, I would say that the Central Asians have welcomed the connectivity idea, they've welcomed the new Silk Road, but they're not convinced yet that it's, that it's going to work. They need to be shown. Uh, that, that this will succeed. Oh. Um, hello. Uh, I was wondering what the Central Asian countries were doing and the U.S. government in terms of Central Asia to combat ISIS and terrorist recruitment currently. Um, yeah, so this is obviously something that is very much in the news these days, and uh, there's a lot of speculation about how much of a threat ISIS poses to uh, Central Asia. And uh, what's, a, what's a little difficult here is that there's, there's, um, there isn't great information about what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan, or it's, it's spotty, you know. And so uh, you get assessments from our, our own sources, the U.S. government. Uh, Russia has its sources, and the Central Asian governments themselves have, have their own people. They have people, you know, who cross the border and look at what's happening, as, 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 as countries tend to do. Um, and not everyone comes to the same conclusion. So I think the, um, you know, our assessment right now is that there are, there is uh, ISIL or ISIS um, components operating in Afghanistan. Most of them seem to be concentrated in more the southeastern areas like Nangahar province. Uh, that seems to be the heaviest concentration, which is not in the area bordering Central Asia. It's really bordering. It's closer to Pakistan. It's bordering Pakistan. Um, some of those group, those, those uh, contingents that are out there are people, in fact, most of them seem to be people who, they were, they were Taliban fighters who just changed their flag and they, you know, they, and pledged allegiance to uh, ISIL. And, uh, and they're not, and it's not big. I mean, the numbers are not big. We're talking maybe several thousands, not Tens, tens of thousands or anywhere near that. Um, so do, do they pose a threat? That's the question to, to Central Asia. Um, what the Central Asian governments are concerned about is instability in those bordering regions because of a lack of central control by the Central Afghan government and what could move into that vacuum. And some, one thing that could move in is, at least in theory, ISIL uh, groups that are operating. Um, there are other groups that actually originated from Central Asia. There's the independent, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, the IMU. There's uh, Jamaat Ansarullah, which is more of a Tajik group. There's a couple of other small. These are and these are small in number, um, and they they were kind of hanging out, getting safe haven in Pakistan, and they a lot of them have been driven out of Pakistan because of operations by the Pakistani military, and are in north, you know, in, in parts of Afghanistan now. So that, to, to some degree, the Central Asian concern, I would say, is broader than just about ISIL. It's about pockets of, you know, no control uh, where groups could operate near the border and then come over the border. But so far, it seems to be more of a theoretical concern, something they should be concerned about and focus on, but as opposed to a real one. Um, 
the last thing I'll mention about this is that uh, there's a whole other element, and I won't talk about this because it would take too long, um, about you know recruitment of people to join ISIL to fight in Syria and Iraq coming from, from Central Asia. And, of course, the concern there is not about, it's not a border issue, it's about people returning, you know, fighting there and then coming back to their home countries and being, forming, you know, sleeper cells or whatever you want to call it and um, committing terrorist acts. Uh, and that also, so far, seems to be more theoretical than real, but it's something that they should be paying attention to and, and I think are. Uh, we're getting, you know... And there's a whole set of questions about what they can do about it, how they should respond, what's the best way to deal with it. And that's something that we're engaging them on and hoping to work together to, uh, to figure out. So short on time, how about if we collect a bunch of questions at once and then you address them all together? Sure, sure. So five, four of our hands in the room. There's just yeah, why don't we go, go yeah. back there? Yeah. It's a simple Understanding of the economies there is that they're based on natural resources. How are they doing economically with the uh, sort of the global collapse of commodity prices, specifically uh -huh. oil and gas, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and the Uzbekistan? Uh huh. Okay. Um, maybe one, one more. Is that? Yeah, I have yeah. two more. Two more. Okay. I'll take it in a completely different direction so you have to answer a bunch of different topics. Um, so I'm wondering what the State Department perspective is on labor migration in Central Asia. Um, so on the one hand, it seems like, at least in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, this is a sort of important crutch for an economy that's not really doing well domestically or giving sort of domestic employment opportunities. Um, but on the other hand, it seems like those migration streams are sort of reinforcing geopolitical relationships with Russia over, say, China or the U.S., because you have this connection of people and labor. Um, and this is sort of not to mention that remittances aren't exactly a stable thing to have 50% of your GDP made up of um, in, in the case of Tajikistan, um, and certainly not to mention what migrant laborers sort of face when they are in Russia in terms of violence and discrimination. Um, so I'm wondering... You know, there's a sort of trade-off here um, of the necessity of labor of uh, labor migration to Russia and the sort of negative trade-offs that you get with those sort of robust streams, and whether or not the State Department sort of considers this um, or thinks about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, the last one. Yeah, what is the cost uh, for the U.S. to maintain the good relationship? 
with these countries mm-hmm. and we uh, for the influence uh, to maintain the influence in this, in this area. So we can understand that China, Russia, even Turkey, Iran, uh, all these countries have more direct interests in these areas, mm-hmm. either out of economy or politics or religion, uh, linguistics, uh, linguistic ties. But for for you for the U.S. actually this area is is of actually no importance in my understanding. <laughs> yeah. Even, Whoa. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So if if we want to maintain influence in every area of the globe, do you think the U.S. is uh, financially viable mm. in fulfilling this? Mm-hmm. In this so there's okay. a lot of pent-up curiosity that has now exploded, and yes, uh, <laughs> in this in this lightning round. Uh, yeah, this is going to have to be a lightning round. Get all yeah, this in so. about seven minutes. Right. <laughs> I guess that's a minute and a half per question, right? Um, okay. So let me try to do these in order. Uh, other influences in the region: Turkey and Iran. Uh, and actually, every one of these questions. I know some of you prefaced your question by saying, "I have a very simple question." Of course, the, the answers the answers are never simple. Um, and and I'll try, but I'll try to be brief here. Um, so Turkey and Iran. Um, you know, both for for historical and cultural reasons, Turkey and Iran both have significant influence and interest in Central Asia, um, you know, linguistically and otherwise. There's, there's, there are strong ties that, that transcend the Soviet period, which is the most recent historical experience. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I would just say on Turkey, it varies from country to country how much of a stake and how much of a role they have. Very significant in Turkmenistan, actually. And one of the things that often gets overlooked is that uh, you know we talk about the labor migrants from Central Asia and Russia? There are 500,000, by some estimates, Turkmen in Turkey, either as students or or working. Um, and there's also a lot of sort of shuttle trade that goes back and forth. And that's you know this is a country of 5.5 million people, so 500,000 is a significant proportion in Turkey. So that 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 is kind of an overlooked element of influence. But Turkish businesses have done pretty well throughout Central Asia. There was, an el- there was a period right after independence in the 90s when I think Turkey had very grand visions of what its role would be in the region and because it was the, you know, the, their Turkic brethren. And I think they overplayed their hand to some extent, and there was a backlash against it. Um, and now they, I, think, I, I would assess they have a more realistic view of what's possible and approach it more incrementally. Um, Iran is, uh, is still, I would say, a question mark in terms of the future relations there. Geographically, as, as was alluded to in some of the earlier comments, there, you know, a lot of the connections through Iran make more sense, for, you know, just in terms of the ease of whether it's pipelines or railroads or whatever getting to the sea. Um, and, and, I, and the Central Asians see that and want to develop that option. They, they have, they've all tread somewhat carefully because of the international sanctions, the, uh, the, this, the, the, the JCPOA, this joint, uh, whatever it is, uh, I don't even remember what it stands for now, a comprehensive plan of action on the nuclear side has opened the door to, to more of that activity. And I expect to see that building slowly, but then you know, getting, getting greater over time. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's. I would say it's it's inevitable. It's an inevitable development in the region. Um, 
there's a whole other set of questions about how, how active Iran wants to be in each of the capitals and di diplomatically and in other ways and extending itself. And sometimes they get themselves into a little bit of trouble, the most recent example being in Tajikistan, where the Iranians were, were blamed to some extent uh, by the government of Tajikistan for encouraging the, uh, the, <clears throat> what they're now calling an attempted coup that happened in early September. I don't know if any of you followed this, but there was the, the deputy minister of defense led an armed insurrection that only lasted about a week um, against the government forces in Tajikistan. And after the fact, the government pointed the finger at Iran in various ways and then condemned their inviting the leader of the op main opposition party in Tajikistan to Tehran for a big conference. So there's they have to tread carefully. Um, okay, Uzbekistan, uh, is, oh, water. This is a question about diplomatic relations among the Central Asians and how much it's affected by water. Uh, this is again. This was. This could be a very long, long uh, discussion, and it's, and it's a really interesting one. I'll just say that we have seen some improvement in the bilateral relations in the last year between Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, and between Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, in the sense that they're they, they're talking to each other more and trying to solve border issues and so on. But they've made very limited progress. Um, and actually, one interesting thing I've noticed is that, to some extent, the, um, there's been more improvement with the Uzbek-Tajik dialogue than, I think, in the Uzbek-Kyrgyz, for whatever reason, that, you know, relatively speaking. But they have a long way to go to uh, resolve many of the things that divide them, and water is one of the most contentious issues that they face. Um, commodity prices, the global collapse, uh, has had a huge impact in Central Asia, absolutely. Um, the, uh, obviously, oil and gas means, the price of oil and gas means a lot to Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan in particular, and they are both feeling the crunch. It's, it's impacted the, the, their, the value of their currency. It's impacted their, just their cash flow coming in to pay government expenses, and, uh, and they're, they're feeling, feeling the crunch. We know a lot more about what's happening in Kazakhstan because it's a more open place in terms of information and what the government says. And, they, and there, the government clearly seems to be trying to deal with it by, you know, budget cutbacks and reform plans, structural reform that um, President Nazarbayev a year ago announced this big new plan that I think it's called the, the Five Directions and the 100 Steps to Achieve Them or something. But it's a very comprehensive reform plan. Um, Turkmenistan, it's a little more difficult to, to understand the response there, but they are um, they're, they're dealing with similar pressures. Uh, and uh, by the way, I think there's been less of an impact on the, I think the price of cotton is down too, but it may be a little bit less of an impact on uh, in that than, than the oil and gas. Uh, the uh, labor migration, uh, on that, you know, I would say, I think the question was sort of what is our view of it, and because it's, it's an economic necessity, but on the other hand, it has these negative side effects uh, for the countries of the region. Um, and I, I guess I would say that our view is to try to understand it better and its potential consequences, and if we can, to help the source countries for the migrant laborers do a better job of providing work at home, and we can do this through some of our assistance programs, although we're not, our assistance programs are not going to solve the, the macro issue that's attracting people to these jobs, but could help around the edges. 
but overall our approach is basically to just accept it as a reality it is what it is and to talk to the governments of the region about how they're how they're dealing with the consequences um, one of the products of the Russian economic uh, depression in the last year and a half, two years, has been the, the remittances, go, the value of the remittances being sent by labor migrants going way down. And by some estimates in Tajikistan, the value has gone down about 40 percent in the last year. Uh, and uh, But the interesting thing that we've noticed is that the, the number, there was expected to be a huge influx of returning migrants who would just leave Russia and come back. And it hasn't quite worked that way. There have been some returnees, but it has not been a flood. It's been more of a trickle. And that probably points to um, the fact that, first of all, many of them have almost resettled in Russia already. They're pretty well settled there. Some of them are even starting to bring families. And also, just there's not anything at home to replace it. They, they do better, even at a lower value, of continuing to work in Russia and sending their, their money home. Um, and uh, the last thing was about the uh, oh the trade-offs and the cost like what is the cost to the U.S. and why why would why does why should we spend anything because at the end of the day it's peripheral to our interests um, now of course I've tried to um, argue you know from the title of my thing that that there, that there is a reason we should care but I but I take your point I mean it's a you know in this in the larger scheme of things you could argue that it's it's marginal, right? That it's on the margins of where our interests lie. Um, so I guess I would say, and this goes back to some of the earlier questions that about you know us matching what China's doing and economically, or what Russia's doing, security and so on, is that you know I think we we try to be we're realistic about the the level of our influence there and how much is at stake for the United States. We do think that we have significant um, security interests. Um, you know, it's not, it's not NATO. You know, it's not, it's not as important to uh, in that sense if you're making comparisons. But it, that we do have significant security interests. That we want to have a role in um, in uh, what happens in that region, and we want to be an option, so to speak. As I said earlier, we want to be one of the options these countries have when they turn for economic help or security help or whatever. Um, and we can we think we can do that without breaking the bank, um, so to speak. In other words, we're not going to be we're not it's not we're not it's not the tens of billions of dollars, but we can we can leverage what we have and use it effectively to maintain uh, maintain a role there and and provide this option. Um, and you know some of the just recently this is not necessarily uh, proof of what the U.S. is willing to invest, but we just opened uh, a state-of-the-art new embassy in Bishkek just uh, when the secretary was there. He actually did the ribbon cutting to open it. Um, we're In about two years, we're going to open a new pretty substantial state-of-the-art embassy in Ashgabat to replace the one that's there now. Um, we have a you know a significant diplomatic presence in all of these places. Uh, it's, not, it's not inconsequential. And Going back to your question earlier, I mean, there's a lot of ways to use the intellectual capital we have, the uh, know-how, the sophistication of our companies and other things to really bring a lot to the table in the region without, you know, it's not, it's, it's different. It is not, you know, bases in Germany or South Korea. It is not, uh, you know, that kind of a profile. 
but it's it, it's I would say it's still significant, and it's and the reason for it is because we do care <laughs> about the region. So I think it's safe to say you've persuaded most of our audience that they should care or else they were biased to begin with. Right. So uh, thank you for coming. Please uh, join me in thanking our speaker for coming here. Thank you for a good question. Really good question.